This podcast is presented by State Farm, a proud supporter of women's soccer and all women's sports. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So pretend I am from Mars or central Illinois mm-hmm. <laughs> and I am unfamiliar with the sport environment in this part of the world. Yeah. How would you explain or characterize the sporting rivalry between Australia and New Zealand? God, how do I do it without diplomatic incidents? It's probably more the question. <laughs> I think just surrender to it. It is, it is deep. We're close, and maybe that's why sometimes we're frenemies. From Apple News, I'm Rebecca Lowe. And I'm Brendan Hunt, and this is After the Whistle. Today, Brendan, we are finally catching up with those cheeky lionesses and that epic penalty shootout that sent the Aussies to the semis. And it's our first ever live and in-person interview with the one, the only, the right honourable Dame Jacinda Ardern, former Prime Minister of New Zealand. And reminder, despite all the specialness, there will still be adult language. So, folks, well, last week spoke to you, the one semifinal, Spain-Sweden, had been set, and it would remain a mystery if it would be England or Colombia, and then France or Australia, and then Saturday night, at least in this part of the world, got cooking. Rebecca, England-Colombia, go! I mean, where do I begin with this England team? Bethany England, which, by the way... Imagine being called Bethany England. (laughs) It would be like being called Brendan United States and playing for the United States. It just tickles me every time. I dare say it would be like if I was Abraham United States. Oh, that would be good. The fact that she's sharing the the royal name (laughs) on top of everything else is comical. (gasps) I didn't even think about that. Abraham United States playing up front would have been amazing. Okay, so the joy that I am receiving right now from this England team is is up there. It is up there because I'm starting to get the feeling, Brendan. We know I feel this a lot, so it's not like I really lost it. But I'm starting to get the feeling that this year could be our year. And here's why. Our defence is a joke. Millie Bright... Jess Carter, Alex Greenwood in that three. You've got Rachel Daly and you've got Lucy Bronze in the wingbacks. This little system that Serena tactics genius Wiegmann has created in this tournament is playing to everybody's strengths. We've conceded two goals in five games. At the Euros last summer, we conceded two goals in six games. So often, Brendan, am I right? Good defences win your cups. Yes, we have a very similar phrase in America, but I'm not going to bother repeating it because it's so close, it's close enough. Go ahead. (laughs) Um, The game itself, of course, we went 1-0 down. And did you think that Santos, who, by the way, was spectacular, and as much as I am a little bit in love with Linda Caicedo, I do think their number 10 Santos, Lacey Santos, is maybe their player of the tournament so far. She was magnificent. Yeah, she was fun all tournament. Caicedo, you know, we had such high hopes for her. Then she had that goal against Germany. But, you know, I personally was asking too much of the 18-year-old Santos. Um, yeah, she absolutely will, will carry that title. Um, you're about to ask, I suspect, mm. if it was a shot or a cross. I mean, I, I mean I'm, I'm, I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt. I've watched it a number of times. That I, I kind of think it, she meant it. I got to go cross. I'd like to <laughs> Anytime people do the amazing thing that people are like, I don't think they meant that on purpose. I'm usually like, yeah, they fucking did. But this time, I, uh, I mean, it was quite the angle. And she was kind of blocked by Daly there in terms of, you know, sight lines on Earps. So 
I go cross, but they score him just the same. Yeah, that's true. I only went shot because she's so blooming good. So I wanted to give her the benefit of the doubt. Sure, but okay, sure. so that's fine. England go 1-0 down on 43 minutes. Were you worried then? Or were you... No. Because I kind of felt like, that's fine. Yeah. That's fine. This, this doesn't matter. But that's a weird feeling for me to feel. Weird in my bones that I'm like, it's okay. Because... Bethany, just to go back to the Queen of England, Bethany England and um, Lucy Bronze have since done interviews after this game in which they have talked very strongly about that moment. And they both said, we were absolutely fine, absolutely no panic. I mean, I know they equalised not long later, but to come from behind, this team has done it before. It has an incredible mental stability within them as a squad and they don't panic. Obviously, that comes from leadership. Obviously, that comes from Serena Wiegmann. And it's quite a big part of football to be able to go a goal down and not panic. And you do see it with the best teams, again, which gives me and fills me with great confidence about this team. So then they go and equalise. Hempo, as they call her in the camp. Lauren Hemp with the goal, but oh, the goalkeeper. So bad. So bad. So tough. So bad. Yeah. That was a doozy. Keepers have been good this tournament because so often keepers are always the ones to go to and women's football to blame. Like, oh, it's not up to scratch. And so when there's an error as from a women's goalkeeper, I'm always like, oh no, that just feeds all the people out there who want to attack it. Um, but anyway, Lauren Hemp with the goal and then into the second half. And Hemp and Russo as a two up top are dangerous and they are growing together in this tournament as we go on. Uh, great finish from Alessia Russo. Yeah. Lovely finish on 62. And then the I turn, felt... The turn uh, when the ball was, you know, at her feet, just leaving the defender behind her was exquisite. It really was. And then and then I, I felt, you know what? Yeah, I think we're fine now. And we were. We saw the game out. Don't think we had too many problems. I think it's important that we didn't have extra time. Mm-hmm. You know, I do think at this stage in a tournament, if you can get it done in 90 minutes, mm-hmm. Brendan, all the better. And now we have to think about Australia. And as confident as I am, and as filled with joy as I am by this team, Australia are a prospect that fills my body with concern. Because if you grow up in England, you grow up to hate the Aussies on a sporting level. On a sporting level, may I just say, we love their soap operas. We may take their Vegemite, (laughs) but we absolutely do not like them on the rugby field, on the cricket field, in Mm -hmm. boats at the Olympics. We hate them on the track as well. So 20 years ago, 2003, England Mm -hmm. against Australia in the Rugby World Cup. Johnny Wilkinson, lots of people listening to this will be like, Johnny, who the hell? Johnny Wilkinson was the best player who played for England in the rugby. And that game in 2003, in the stadium, by the way, where England are going to play Australia in the World Cup semi-final, had to go to extra time, which is relatively rare in rugby. And Johnny Wilkinson did almost the equivalent of like a, a winning penalty with a drop kick. I think it's called a drop kick. Not massively into my rugby. But that day I was. Oh, that day I was. And we <laughs> killed the Aussies. And it was, I can still remember, and I still get chills on my arm, sitting at home in London, crack of dawn, because obviously a time difference. And England winning the World Cup. It was one of the best sporting days of of my life. It was that good, that big. And then every four years, we play them in the Ashes, right? In the cricket. And we've just finished an Ashes series in England, which Australia... Sorry, I'm really going off about this, aren't I? But I'm just trying to explain to people the hatred between England and Australia. I mean, is there sort of deep down love? You know how you look at football matches sometimes and you're like, oh, Liverpool, Manchester United, they hate each other. USA, Mexico, they hate each other. But then you get some rivalries where deep down there's a little bit of love. I maybe think with England and Australia, like so far, is there? 
I just don't know. I'm trying to I'm trying to scrape down and wonder whether there is actually any deep rooted respect or whether it's just pure hatred. I'm not sure. Either way, this is big. I've seen people answer their own questions before, but yeah. but you are you are baffled at your own questions. I am. Which is something I've never seen. That's really I post tough ones. It's quite the hairpin <laughs> turn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm honestly, I am just I am dreading this. You, though. It's massive. You can't bloody wait, can you? I cannot. I cannot. Partially because I'll be there. And the spectacle of Australia versus England in Australia, I feel very fortunate. Again, I've said this before, it just about makes up for the fact that I came here to essentially not see the U.S. play. Do they hate us over there? Um, They love to beat you. Yeah, they hate They love to beat you. It's hatred. Um, But the funny thing of it is, this rivalry you've talked about, you know, it's massive in the cricket, it's massive in the rugby. It has never happened on the world stage in men's or women's football. I know. They've never played at a World Cup, and now they will do so in one of the biggest games you can possibly have. And just to also talk about the fact, like you say, Brendan, very correctly, that they've never had any kind of football rivalry, because in Australia, cricket and rugby and Aussie rules, but cricket and rugby are, you know, miles and miles and miles ahead of soccer, of football. And yet, the only time this England team has been beaten under Serena Wiegmann, was against Australia at Brentford's GTEC Stadium just a few months ago in April in a friendly. They lost by two goals to nil did England. That is terrifying because that is the only, I don't know, trauma in some ways this England team have been through under Wiegmann and they are facing that adversary this coming week in the semi-final. And GTEC Stadium, not exactly Lords, but still... A big home loss. Yeah. So I sit down here in this bar in Auckland to watch this match. And like, I'm, I, I at least want Australia to win. At least let me have a home semi with Australia in it. France are so good and Australia were so resilient. It was 90 minutes of just back and forth and back and forth. Wendy Renard, I mean, the world knows, but what an incredible player to watch. She is just leading the whole, the whole squad along the way. We go to extra time. Terrifying. By now, Sam Kerr has come on. She came on in the 55th minute. She never really got a sniff of goal. And I'm speeding through all this because it just comes down to what is the most amazing penalty shootout in the history of the World Cup in men's or women's. It went 10 rounds. There were 20 kicks. Let me remind the folks at home, that means the first five were tied. But that means that there were four rounds after that of sudden death where no one got an advantage. Amazing. It was unbelievable. Um, and there were two different times where Australia could have won it, including one time that the shot was taken by their goalkeeper, Mackenzie Arnold, who had an incredible shootout. She just happened to miss her own shot. Well, you know my thoughts on that. We don't need keepers <laughs> taking penalties. Carry on. <laughs> well, you very nearly had it forced on them True. if there had been one more miss. Now, that's different. I'm okay with that. It finally gets down to uh, Courtney Vine, who is a late sub, not a late enough to be out there specifically for the penalty kicks sub. But, and here is again, the crack research squad over here at After the Whistle at work. I wondered, was she the first ever ginger to win a penalty kick shootout in the history of the World Cup? And we find out that she is the first merely since 1982. And Horst Hrubesch, who by dint of being the first ever Penalty kick shootout winner as a ginger because it was the first ever penalty kick shootout of the World Cup. They are the only two gingers to ever have that honor. Stand up, Courtney Vine. 
And then, of course, England goes on to win up to that. And by the way, even though just in Auckland, where obviously the New Zealand and Australia rivalry is uh, is pretty intense, mm. uh, I would wonder which one is more intense if you ask some Aussie folks between New Zealand and England. But the bar was just in hysterics. Like everyone was going absolutely apeshit. I watched a five-minute video of celebrations from all across the country earlier. I love videos like that. It ends with the one that you've probably seen because it's been quite viral of a bunch of Australians watching on a plane. Oh, that's a brilliant one. And it's from the back so you can see like 20 screens and all 20 screens are on this match and they all celebrate at the same time and the stewardesses are, are stunned because they were not watching the game. And one person's watching Lord of the Rings. That's it, yeah. That person's yeah. probably the Kiwi on the plane. <laughs> Poor bloke. Poor bloke. Oh, I mean, they have just given us so much. I mean, the whole World Cup, they have given us so much. But you being over there, Brendan, and do you feel it? Do you see it everywhere you go? Because it certainly isn't a sport that has permeated over there before about three weeks ago. I'm not seeing it everywhere I go here in Auckland since you know, they're they're out. So it's, it's a little temped down, but certainly in Sydney. And once I get back there tomorrow, I'll be seeing it again. I mean, my goal once it became clear that it might be England, Australia in the semi in Australia was to be able to watch that game, especially once the U.S. was knocked out. So that's why I'm leaving tomorrow and I'll miss the Auckland semi. But I think that'll be a worthy miss no matter how good Spain-Sweden is, which should be a heck of a game because England-Australia, everything's in place for a truly memorable encounter. Now, Brendan, you have been not just over there enjoying the footy. You've been out and about talking to a few people. And today on the pod, we have, I think it's fair to say, a pretty special guest. I think she's pretty special. Jacinda Ardern, the former Prime Minister of New Zealand. Before we actually hear from her, for anyone who doesn't know anything about her, give us an intro. Quick rundown. She became the world's youngest female head of government when she got elected at age 37. She became world famous for expertly navigating her country through a mass shooting, a volcanic eruption and covid and for being an outspoken advocate for moms and women everywhere after she became the world's second elected head of government to give birth while in office and to talk openly about the challenges of it. Ultimately, she stepped down as leader after two terms in early 2023. But she is also one of the people responsible for bringing the World Cup to New Zealand. And this is our chat about that. This podcast is presented by State Farm, which believes in amplifying the voices and profiles of women athletes. By ensuring coverage for female athletes today, State Farm helps set the stage for women's sports tomorrow. Like a good neighbour, State Farm is there. Folks, a most fittingly wonderful individual to be our very first live face-to-face -face presence of anyone ever in the history of this podcast, who weren't married to each other, um, <laughs> please welcome to After the Whistle, the Right Honorable Dame, Jacinda Ardern. Jacinda, thank you so much for this. Oh, what a pleasure. This is how we bring people to New Zealand. We say, I'll do the podcast, but only if you come here. <laughs> <laughs> it worked on me. Now, you've also been luring people as a nation uh, to the Women's World Cup, which is uh, why we're here. You were just talking a little bit before we got going here about... Kiwis and, and hospitality. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're wily like that. We think, what are new and imaginative ways that we can get people to visit New Zealand? And it turns out sporting fixtures is a really good one. Um, but it's also, you know, such a big part of our culture, this notion of hosting. In fact, there's a word in the indigenous language of Aotearoa New Zealand for 
essentially hospitality and it's manaki tanga. It's this idea that you care and look after those who uh, who are your guests, and we and we take that job very seriously. Mm. Well, uh, thank you for it. This tournament, I assume, and correct me if I'm wrong here, must have come together to some degree under your watch. Yes. How's it feeling? You know, watching it sort of finally, you know, come to bloom. It's been incredible. You know, back in 2018, if my memory serves, our Minister for Sport, together we we released a strategy around women and girls in sport with the whole focus of trying to lift the visibility of women and girls in sport, making sure that there was greater equality in sporting codes and greater representation. And part of that strategy was, look, how can we bring to our young women, some of the greatest players in the world. And so since then, we've hosted the Cricket Women's World Cup, the Rugby Women's World Cup, and of course, FIFA. And it's just been incredible to see it from the beginning to then its delivery. To that end, what are your recollections as a young girl in a small town of Mournsville of the degree to which you and other girls were or were not included in sport, you know, in school or otherwise. You know, I, I grew up in a town where football wasn't widely played in my town, but it actually wasn't widely played in New Zealand. And this was actually a point that I made to the FIFA president when he was here. You know, you're witnessing a revolution in New Zealand, which is so exciting to be a part of, that in my lifetime, you could go from being teased if you played football to now seeing record-breaking crowds turn out to see the best woman in the game play. So to see that revolution in real time is just being exhilarating. Back when I was at high school, though, I first I started out in netball, mm-hmm. uh, which is a game very specific to basically the Commonwealth. Um, it's, it's come up with Rebecca from time to time. As I was got a little bit older, though, rugby did become an option. My mother was dead against me signing up for rugby, but I remember going outside C Block one day and seeing the notice board by the science classrooms with a sign up for the girls' rugby team getting my pen out and being ready to write my name down. And then I saw all the other girls who had signed up and thought, oh, my God, I'd get crushed by my own team, (laughs) thinking (laughs) that perhaps um, I needed a couple of more years to muster the courage. So I signed up for touch rugby instead. And I played that for many years and I loved it. We're a sporting nation. And yet even as a sporting nation, you know, We've got double the rate of girls exiting sport by the time they're 14 years old. And so lots of things that we need to deal with there to keep our young women engaged in sports. I have no doubt this World Cup is one of them. To that end, New Zealand's women, the football ferns, did not advance out of the group, but they mm. they won their first match at a difficult moment for the country. And as you said, like they've set national attendance records, not just for women's football, but for football. Absolutely. Full stop yep. in this country. Yeah, what did you think of their performance and and what can it do for the women's game in this country going forward? Well, I mean, I, I find it hard to come up with words to convey what it was like to be at that game. So it's, I mean, it's the opening match. And I remember when we had the draw for the pool rounds for the World Cup, I was willing for two things, a really good draw for New Zealand, but also that we would draw... Uh, because, of course, we're split hosting between Australia and New Zealand. I was desperate that we would draw the US team uh, because, of course, that would mean we would get the US team supporters here in New Zealand. We knew they had such a strong support crew that it would be magnificent to host them. 
But the draw that New Zealand had was, you know, relatively tough. And for the opening match to draw Norway was, you know, it felt challenging. To see then the team just come out just firing in that game and not only firing but to win was incredible in front of a record crowd for any football match in New Zealand. I was emotional. At the end of the game, I turned around and there was our Minister for Sport, who's also our finance minister. He was the minister that between us we bid for to host. And I just turned around and saw him. I could see the tears in his eyes. And, you know, it was this great moment, this very cinematic embrace between us <laughs> as we <laughs> sobbed quietly at the back of the stadium. Wonderful. I'll remember that moment for the rest of my life. Afterwards, we went down to the changing rooms and I said to the team, you know, you've changed everything because, as I say, it's a revolution for New Zealand and they were right there at that critical moment. And then a week later, you know, my daughter still had the band from the match. I gave her my wristband. She wore it for a week. (laughs) She went to daycare and she did a show and tell on the FIFA World Cup. She plays football. She started at four, loves it plays with boys, doesn't bat an eyelid at it. That's the kind of legacy that this competition will leave. I grew up with two women having been prime minister before me, and I never, ever questioned that I, as a woman, could or couldn't be a politician, let alone a prime minister. Mm-hmm. Never never occurred to me that I couldn't do it. And it won't occur to my daughter that she can't be in the best team in the country and be on the world stage, and that's a magnificent thing. Mm. Spain versus Sweden at Eden Park tomorrow for a spot in the final. Will you be attending or watching? At the moment, it's all down to whether I've got a babysitter. So I will certainly be watching. It's the question is whether I'm in person. And of course, I've had a little bit of a back and forth with the Prime Minister of Australia and was in Australia last week. Just, man, you won't find a nation more excited about a game than Australia right now. Well, great. This dovetails beautifully into my next question. So pretend I'm from Mars or... Central Illinois, <laughs> and I am unfamiliar with the sport environment in this part of the world. Yeah. How would you explain or characterize the sporting rivalry between Australia and New Zealand? Oh, how do I do it without diplomatic incident? It's probably more the question. <laughs> I think just surrender to it. It is, it is deep. I could probably only explain it if... You had, you know, like a best friend at high school that you were really close to and there's so much in common. And if you were anywhere in the world and you saw them across a room, you'd immediately go to them because they understand you and they know you. But you get into a competitive environment and it is on. (laughs) That is the relationship between New Zealand and Australia. And it runs pretty deep. We're close. And maybe that's why sometimes we're frenemies. Mm -hmm. Mm. And... You know, a a bit of a rivalry, of course, with England as well. And now it's England versus Australia for a spot in the final. For many Kiwis, I assume, this forces a choice between two sporting evils. But you say everyone's in for Australia. I feel like there will be a lot of support for Australia. And it's interesting because I think maybe it breaks down possibly via code as well. It's in rugby. Maybe it might be a little bit different. It's, Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, I wonder whether or not... Women's football has presented us with the opportunity to have a bit of a new beginning in the relationship mm-hmm. where we say, let's bring that closeness, let's manifest that by finally for once cheering for you. Yep. <laughs> well, if it happens now, I'm, let's all enjoy this golden moment. I'm sure it'll go straight <laughs> out the door at the next 
cricket. (laughs) Exactly right. It will be brief, fleeting, but beautiful. (laughs) Uh, You've been wonderful, and thank you for your time, and we'll let you go on this, unless you have more to say, because I'm enjoying myself and I'm on vacation. Um, (laughs) Shifting away from sports, you're welcome. For those of us who know New Zealand's sort of cultural greatest hits, Lord, Taika Waititi, Jane Campion, the Finn Brothers, All Things Hobbiton, Xena Warrior Princess, and on and on and on. Is there an unheralded or underheralded slice of Kiwi culture that we maybe don't know about in the States that uh, you can recommend? Well, I did just notice you said the Finn Brothers. You didn't say Crowded House. I don't know whether that's a reference because you believe that Crowded House belongs to Australia. That is patently untrue. No, no. No, no. I'm really trying to honor their full oeuvre and not just just nail down to Crowded House. Very kind of you to do so. Well done. Good knowledge there. But this is one of the funny rivalries with Australia is they're known for claiming things that we consider to be Kiwi. Mm -hmm. Crowded House is one of them. Well, when I was researching that question, I was you picked admit, that up. surprised to find Russell Crowe was Kiwi. I was like, oh, really? Oh, no. There's often a hilarious debate over whether or not we trade that one in order to claim that crowded house. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca will have the deepest regrets she has missed this. Yes. Uh, she sends her love, and uh, thank you so much for having us. Thank you Jacinda for coming. Ardern. Thank you so much. And there you go, Rebecca. That was me and Jacinda. Brendan, I loved it. I loved so much about it. You know what I love the most? That is the third netball reference. Third Netball reference on after the whistle. I think you're now understanding the gravitas of this game we call netball. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's great too, because every time I watch basketball, I'm like, oh boy, all this dribbling sure is dumb. (laughs) You're right though. Netball, amazing. You don't even have to move. Pass, pass, pass. No one has to move. It's amazing. It's absolute genius. Yet again, Australia against England and Australia beat England in the netball only recently. Let's move on. On or off the pitch, women athletes deserve to be recognised for being awesome competitors and for being inspiring role models for generations to come. That's why State Farm is proud to present this podcast. Like a good neighbour, State Farm is there. Okay, time for some bits and bobs. Brendan, what do you have? The ratings down here, particularly down in Australia, the shootout win against France was broadcast on the main news channel and streaming on Channel 7 and 7 Plus. And it is, quote, the highest rated TV sports program of the last decade in Australia. And again, this is a sports mad country. That's of the last decade, the highest rated sports program. And that's 10 years of grand finals. I mean, that's crazy. That's amazing. That is amazing. Wow, that's floored me a little bit. My bit, and Bob, Brendan, is I know he's not gone yet, Black Gondonovsky. And it's a little bit cheeky, isn't it, having a chat about this? But, you know, we're going to. The successor to Vlad Gondonovsky is a conversation which is beginning to be had. And names are being thrown out there, like Serena Wiegmann. Like Tony Gustafsson, who is the head coach of the Australia team, who, of course, was actually assistant to Jill Ellis a few years back and knows the program well. Laura Harvey, who's the manager of the OL Reign and the NWSL. But my vote, having thought about it a while, my vote, if you can get her, and I don't think you'll be able to, but you should be able to, is Emma Hayes, the Chelsea manager and lady who in 2021 was voted the best women's soccer coach in the world. What do you think about that? I would accept it. Yeah. Now, me, you know, being steeped in Dutch football, I want Serena Wiegmann. 
Um, I have no idea what her contract situation is, but I, I'm just guessing that the U.S. is putting a little bit more money in women's football than England her is. Her contract I, is up until 2025. Mm, yeah, well, you know what else could go up? Her fucking salary. <laughs> so <laughs> let's... Let's just let's just see what happens there. Well, if, if she were to win the World Cup, if she were, then it is a good time to go out. You've won the Euros, you've won the World Cup, go for a new challenge. And boy, would this be a big challenge for her. So yeah, I would vote for that too, for you lot. Yeah, I'm looking no further than that. But Tony Gustafsson would be pretty cool since he's already kind of in the family, having been Jill's assistant for two. And obviously he's doing an immense job, but... I don't. I don't need all my women's team coaches to be men. I don't. I don't need streaks of them. There's hardly any women's coaches left. Serena's the only one left right now, right? Yeah. I'd rather we not have two dudes in a row. Uh. I can't quite put my finger on why, but that's a preference. Okay. Got any more bits and bobs for me? Um, just you know, talking about the Spain situation a little bit. You know, again, Spain is a team that has been in revolt for some time. Uh, just to review for folks here, 15 members of the team sent a letter to the Spanish Football Association about a year ago that they no longer wanted to be selected unless there were changes. This was particularly aimed at the coach who was seen as a, I don't read Spanish that great, so I'm just going to say, bit of a dick. Okay, I was going to say Wally, but go for that, yeah. Sure, sure, Dick Wally. <laughs> and whereas when uh, you know big French players made a similar complaint, that resulted in the French Football Association going like, oh, whoa, we are listening to you. This coach is out and was replaced by Harry Renard, who did a great job. The Spanish Football Federation only dug in, and there's been some sort of like internecine squabbling over there ever since. And like this team clearly does not like their coach. They came off the pitch after that win against Holland, and you know, there's a little clip of it on Twitter, and you know, it's not exactly super clear evidence. He's like, hey, way to go, gang. And they they're not even looking at him. <laughs> they're yeah. smiling at each other. And it's just the a situation where you go, like, well, do we do we support Spain because of its players or do we want Spain to get shown up because of the lack of support they've shown that their players? I mean, these players all play for Barcelona and Real Madrid for the most part, and um, they are getting support at the club level that they're not getting at the national level. And it's kind of, it's just icky. It's icky. I guess in the end, I, I do want the players to have their success, but boo. But then I feel bad for the players who decided to stick to their principles. If Spain go and win the World Cup, some of these players sort of not changed their mind, but felt that they wanted to try and win the World Cup. Totally understandable. And despite being one of the 15 or a couple of the 15 that wrote this letter to the Federation, decided, you know what, they had to apologise and they were allowed to go to the World Cup, right? So I feel bad for them having to step down from their principles in order to try and do something that they may only ever do once in their lives. But then I feel so bad for the players who decide to stick to their principles. So if Spain go and win the World Cup, those players who would have been in the squad are back home. And that's just an icky situation too. I feel like nobody's really a winner. I mean, they've gone so far now in the tournament that the Federation are not going to be shown up no matter what happens now. So I think we're past that point. That would only, I think, have happened if they'd been knocked out in the group stage. So that job can't be done. You know what would be nice, Brendan? You know what would be really nice? It would be nice if like women were listened to the first time. That would be great. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. We could just send that memo, yeah. right? Yeah. Let's send that memo to Spain. Thanks. Uh, I have one other less portentous bit and bob that sort of got uh, run over there in the earlier excitement about the longest ever penalty kick shootout in World Cup history, which is, you know what the second longest penalty shootout in the World Cup ever was? No. USA Sweden last week. Wow. It was the longest penalty shootout ever and all the all the stories coming out of there and all the you know Sturm and Drang and Angst didn't even know that I had witnessed live the longest 
World Cup shootout ever, which would have been a great feather in my cap to take home. The one sliver of a feather in my cap, and now even that's fucking gone. <laughs> oh, mate. Oh, mate. Um, all right, we've got a few things for our listeners to be doing with, have we not? Uh, yes. First of all, the, uh, the nickname vote. We're down to three. Uh, we're going to post it on our Instagram, and we want your votes as to which of the three will be the official Women's National Team nickname, at least on this pod going forward. <laughs> yeah. Should we just remind our listeners of those three yes. in case they, for some reason, have forgotten? Mia Hamm did whittle it down to Liberty Bells, USA. If you want to know more about that, listen to the Michelle Akers episode and the Riveters. Those are the three, Liberty Bells, USA and Riveters. And then also, Brendan, you know what we're going to do? What, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We're going to do a little listener question episode, no less. In a few days, we're going to... I know. We're going to answer listener questions on the pod right here. Your questions can be about basically anything to do with the women's game, the rules, the players, the World Cup, anything, basically, actually. I mean, could also be about Brendan's trip. So many things we want answers to. Has he tried Vegemite? To submit your questions, simply record your question via a voice memo on your phone and email it to atw at apple.com. Be sure to tell us your name, where you're from, and please try to keep your questions to about 30 seconds or less. And we're going to select a few and answer them in an upcoming episode this very Blooming week, which by the way, it's a very pod heavy week, Brendan. We have got a pod today, which is Monday, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday. My friend, only Friday is your day of rest, but then you're in the future, so you might have a whole other schedule. Oh, yeah, you're getting content, people. Industry term content coming your way. <sighs> All right, mate, I'll catch you tomorrow. Good night from the future. <laughs> All right, folks, be sure to follow the show on Apple Podcasts, where you can also rate and review us. It really helps people find the show. And for round-the-clock tournament news, scores and standings, as we head into the final week, check out My Sports on the Apple News app, where available. And just to say, Rebecca, I don't like that I'm going to be rooting against England this week. Really? But I'm going to be. Well, that, well, that's nice that you don't like it. I mean, I mean, if you don't like it that much, maybe just switch. <laughs> All right, but if England get to the final, you're back with me, right? 100%. Yeah, boy. Yeah.